Hello, everyone. This is Mike Epstein, and welcome to a very special episode of Speaking of the Arts. If you're interested in world music, whether you're a fan, a presenter, an agent, an artist, or a manager, this is the episode for you. My guest today is Isabel Soffer. Isabel is the founder of Live Sounds, an independent company that produces, creates, and curates live international music programs in New York and across the country. Live Sounds is dedicated to developing cultural understanding and appreciation for innovative arts from around the world and to preserving and cultivating international music traditions. The company's major productions include Live at 365 at City University of New York and the Global Sound Series at Pace University, as well as many projects and collaborations with cultural institutions and festivals, including the Hollywood Bowl, Walt Disney Concert Hall, Make Music New York, and Arts Brookfield at the World Financial Center. At the same time, Isabel is co-founder and director of Global Fest, a 501c3 nonprofit organization serving the world music community. Since 2003, Live Sounds has co-produced its annual groundbreaking one-night, three-stage, 12-band world music festival that coincides with the annual Association of Performing Arts Presenters Conference in New York. Global Fest's flagship festival has become one of the U.S.'s most anticipated and diverse cultural events and an essential catalyst for the world music field in North America, launching the careers of over 100 international and local artists. Prior to forming Live Sounds, Isabel worked at the World Music Institute for 25 years, where she was instrumental in shaping, developing, and cultivating the North American world music scene into what it is today. In addition, Isabel produced four Grammy-nominated recordings and created the pioneering international film festival, Real Rhythms. Isabel, it is an honor to have you on today. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to speak with you. Great. Well, you know, just reading your bio now got me really inspired. I mean, talk about being productive. You are literally the living definition of an entrepreneur in the classical sense, uh, as defined by John Batiste in the early 19th century, someone who moves resources from a lower level of productivity to a higher one. That is clearly you. <laughs> Thanks. That's so nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't get a lot of uh, feedback in this field, so it's really nice for you to, to say that. Oh, you bet. Well, you know, for a little background and context, uh, maybe we should start our conversation by talking about what you were doing prior to starting your company. How did you initially become interested and passionate about world music? I have a, a funny introduction um, into it, which is that I lived in the same apartment building as the founder of World Music Institute as a kid, and uh, I would go to concerts, Tibetan monks, Indian classical music. I also came from a really artistic family who was interested in um, music from around the world and and rock and roll and all kinds of music, but um, but I started. Find, I, I just started uh, going to these shows and having these really interesting experiences um, as a kid. And at one point, the founder of World Music Institute, then um, he was actually just starting World Music Institute, and asked me if I wanted to work there. And I had studied art um, in school, art and education, but I was so just intrigued by this um, idea that I just said yes. 
And um, <clears throat> that was the beginning of World Music Institute. And I, it was in the LP days. Um, we had word processors. <laughs> it was pretty early days. Um, and uh, just never wanted to leave it. Um, I loved the idea of working with artists. I loved the idea of listening to new sounds. I loved that this music brought people together and that there was an interest in it. Um, and uh, it just grew from there. That is amazing. So clearly... Uh, coincidence. It was all coincidence. coincidence. <laughs> yeah, you're in the right place. Um, and how wonderful that you were able to take take advantage of the music that you that was near you and and sort of get immersed. That's that's really wonderful. So maybe fast forward. Then you had been working um, working there for a long time. What what kind of happened that you decided I'm going to transition from this? I'm going to you know launch my company. What was going on then? Um, well, that's a long and intense story. Um, but there were there was a lot of changes in general. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it just, I mean, things, you know, it was it was slowing down for me, and I was just moving on and really wanted to be able to have the freedom to do what I wanted to do. Um, and at the same time, Global Fest was really um, taking on a life of its own. It was becoming a bigger part of my work and my life and, and something that um, was that I was working on so deeply with my co-founders, um, Bill Bregan and Maury Aronson at the time. It, it's now Shanta Spake has taken over Maury's position with Global Fest, but um, it, it just seemed to be the right time to break off and work, start my own company and, and work for myself and be able to just focus on um, new and exciting projects. And, it was, without a doubt, it was a scary time, but it was a really, really, really exciting time. And you know, working in an organization for that many years has advantages, but it also has disadvantages. And um, because you don't know outside of your organization, because, you you know, you're just so closely attached. And so it was a really exciting time for me to yeah, absolutely. The, start um, new projects. Right, right. Um, you know, one of the, the and I think the number one reason why anybody, regardless of if, what field they're in, doesn't matter if it's the music industry, um, the number one reason to start a business is, is for freedom, you know, and um, when you're able to take that leap and combine it with your passion, I mean, just look at how far you can go, and you're a great example of that. What, you know, I want to talk a little bit specifically about live sounds uh, before we kind of dive into Global Fest. You, so Live Sounds, I mentioned this in the intro, produces two annual series in New York, um, Live at 365, the Global Music Series at City University of New York, and the Global Sound Series at Pace University. How did each of those collaborations come about? Um, they just came about by conversations, really. Um, um, the Graduate Center had come to me to because the public programs department had wanted to create a series there. And they already had a ser an ongoing series. It was a sort of classical and chamber music 
uh, series during the day, and they wanted to expand. And in particular, uh, they wanted to create a series that represented the very strong uh, ethnomusicology department <clears throat> at the Graduate Center. So it was a way of um, bringing in music that represented um, artists and traditions that um, students at the Graduate Center were working on or and would be interested in. So it was, it was, it made a lot of sense. Um, it's really one of the leading ethnomusicology departments in the country, and it made sense to have a series there that um, represented its its position. Um, and and through our work there, um, we were able to really incorporate the students, um, the uh, PhD students. Um, at who are uh, at the graduate center um, into being a part of the series itself, and we're moving forward with that even to deeper ways uh, this upcoming season. Um, and with Pace, yeah. it was it was a connection through. I was doing um, uh, work with the River to River Festival <clears throat> and producing. Uh, the international music series at the River to River Festival. And it was at that time, which was four years ago, I guess, um, maybe five, um, that uh, part of the River to River Festival was taking place at the Schimmel Center at Pace University, which is a fantastic theater um, and a real hidden gem in New York City. Um, and it had just... Uh, brought in a new uh, director of, of cultural affairs who was putting together a performing arts series. And so it was exactly at that same time that I was doing River to River work there and then working with the director, the, the new director who was coming in into PACE. Um, and we worked together really well. And, and he asked me to continue to produce the international music at the Schimmel Center, which has been a real thrill for me because it's such a great theater and it's, I have such freedom to bring in really a great array of artists there. Um, and the production, uh, is just incredible. So every artist who comes in is just blown away by the sound and the professional team there. So that's how that started. Yeah, absolutely. What, I'm kind of curious. I mean, what sort of challenges would you say are involved in presenting music where in a lot of cases audiences have very well never heard of the artist or even or they may not have even heard of the style of music the artist is performing? I think, I, I mean, every, every presenter everywhere, well, every presenter, almost every presenter, at least in the U.S., has to really consider the risk, um, and has to be a risk taker to bring in artists that are not known to them and hope that there's going to be an audience for it. Um, and that is, that is absolutely a challenge. Um, I think 
you know, there's there are presenters out there, not really in the U.S. There aren't many, but and some free summer festivals can do it much easier because they're not selling tickets. But when you're, you know, selling tickets, it is it is a risk. And um, oh, I really have to think about bringing shows that I know that there's an audience for and that I know how to reach that audience. And um, so it is. Um, it is really coming up with ideas of artists that I know personally from my experience that they're going to be successful uh, performing in 650-seat theater in New York City, and that we're going to be able to get the community out, we're going to be able to get new people out to hear this music. Um, and it And it is more of a challenge now than ever because... You can't really use print ads. You have to use all sorts of new ways of reaching out, um, you know, both social media and, and community outreach. And um, so it is. It's it's a huge challenge. Um, it's a huge challenge also because it's such a saturated market here in New York City, and you can see so much in so many places. And any given night, you can hear music from, I don't know, 30, 40 countries. <laughs> Might not be the same type of music that I'm I'm working on, but it's out there and it's it's not unique anymore. So it, that creates another challenge. Um, yeah, absolutely. Also exciting. Yeah. For sure, yeah. It's a big marketing challenge. You know, if I was a presenter not in New York City, but in a more rural area in the country. I mean, what advice would you have for a, for a presenter who is interested in bringing an artist to perform in the U.S. for the first time? So you're saying what advice for... Well, sort of an, <laughs> yeah, it's sort of an open-ended question. I mean, when I, I guess what I'm asking is looking at the artists that you work with and present, if, if it was a, the case of an artist that had never actually been in the country before, and we're not talking about New York City... Um, what are some things that that you know, based on your experience, would be especially challenging? Um, I'm I'm wondering, you know, what just in general, what sort of advice you might have? Because I think that as as challenging as it is, I think there's a lot of presenters who clearly want to try and incorporate artists from other countries and, and specifically other styles of music, um, but they might not yeah. know specifically what they're getting into. <laughs> what would you Yeah, and you work with some of those artists and I, and I'm and so I'm sure that you have the same, you know, that you experience the the challenges as well. And I nice. guess I, I mean I am asked this question a lot and and I think that there's for a presenter that really feels strongly about an artist um and they really want to bring it to their theater but don't know how to market it. I mean, there's two things. I, you know, one is that you have to be practical. So, um, if you have a 300, 500, or 1,000 seat theater and you're bringing in an artist that's completely unknown, you don't know that, that the community, you know, exists for this artist. You don't know that the, you know, who knows about this artist. I mean, it just might be your own personal interest. It might not be the wisest artist for you to bring because it's not, you know, it's, it's going to be so much work. And in that case, 
I mean, I do this all the time as um, I would make suggestions of other places for that artist to play that, you know, would be less of a challenge to bring out an audience. Um, so I think that you do, you, you know, presenters need to be practical. Um, but I think that one of the problems with some presenters is that they're not able to do the work to find the audience for shows. And, and, and some presenters are willing to do this and some aren't. And those that are, are going to take the time to really find the communities, the newspapers, the outlets, stores, the community centers, the community leaders, um, who they can work with to, to promote the show. Um, and it does take time. And I think that those are the presenters that really, you know, have a vision and have a, um, urge to, take risks and to in, to to bring new sounds, new um, new ideas to their theaters. And in the end, I think I can't imagine an instance where that type of theater would not grow their audience because they're um, willing to take risks and not present the same thing that they just know is going to fill seats. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's certainly about risk and it's, I would think it's, it's just challenging in general too, because it probably requires the organization to dig deeper and learn more about who their audience really is and, and is the, can they make the sort of cultural connections that would make the music more relevant? Um, so it's certainly it's not easy. Um, I, I think it's safe. To it say isn't, but those are the better presenters. You know, those are the—I right. mean, in my opinion, obviously. But you know, those are the presenters that are visionaries um, and are willing to, you know, take those risks. And and we all know that that's not easy. And and you know, many of us applaud those. We hear all the time in, um, you know, me and my colleagues hear all the time in sessions, you know, I can't do world music because I don't have an audience for it. And they might be living, you know, in a place that's incredibly diverse. It's just that that those audience members are not going to their theater because the theater's not presenting relevant anything relevant to them. Yeah, they really it's hard. It's like when I try and you know, on the other side of the table, um approaching presenters with you know, our roster and, and what their projects are. Certainly it has to be a good fit. And if they think they can sell tickets, it's a good fit. But if on the other side of the table, if, I, if I'm a presenter, I really need to understand who's coming to our shows. And like you said, the ones who are the visionary presenters who really have that expansive sort of mindset are the ones who are able to make it work. Yeah, and are the ones who are going to develop, keep developing new audiences, which is what every presenter really needs to have. And I mean, you need you need to develop, you need to, con- and, you know, in this in this environment, um, especially with so little support for the arts, you need to constantly work on developing your audience and, and building it and keeping them close. Right. Well, I think it's safe to say that you. You clearly have your pulse on the world music scene. How do you, in general, how, how do you learn about new artists for events that you're looking that you are producing? What's your process for that? 
Um, it, it happens in so many ways. Um, and I, I try also really hard. Um, it, a lot of it comes to me. A lot of it comes to me through agents. It comes through colleagues. Um, it comes through um, the many conferences that I go to, co- conferences and festivals that I go to all year. Um, it happens at the um, through word of mouth. I f- think a lot of it is through colleagues. Uh, I think that they're sort of m- many of our, it, you know, it, it's a lot. A lot of it is through word of mouth from co- colleagues. We have in the world music circles, we have networks of um, colleagues that present at least a portion of global music in their concert series and festival series each year. And we have lots of conversations. We meet whenever we're together. There's dinners, there's conversations, there's <clears throat> listservs of information that's constantly being fed back and forth. There's, of course, the Arts Presenters Conference, which is key. There's Womex, which is key. Um, and then... Um, and then, uh, you know, a lot of it is is knowing which agents are working with great artists and have their fingers on the pulse of great music. And um, I, I think that that's an area that's really not talked about enough is the importance of agents that are really also working really hard in this field. Um, this, you know, sometimes feels like there's not enough rapport between presenters and agents. Um, agents are just trying to sell something, but it's really not that way. I, I don't think it's it's really more that you know, agents are choosing artists that they feel really passionately about and <clears throat> really feel are going to be successful in the touring market, too. Um, so it just happens. There's no shortage of it. It's, it's constant. Well, and yeah, now through Spotify and through YouTube, it's just so easy to hear amazing music all the time. It's, it's yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm glad you're you're mentioning sp- some of the specific ways that you do because I think anybody listening who who maybe is a total newcomer to the scene um, and if they're looking to get involved, it's very important for them to know some of these resources. So I'm glad that you mentioned some of them. I think this is a good segue then to talk a little bit more specifically about Global Fest. Um, just for a little background, tell tell us how it how it started and, and ultimately sort of why it started. Um, Global Fest started post nine eleven um, because um, myself, Bill, and Maury, who I mentioned earlier, really were worried that there was going to be. Um, a lot of fear of presenting international artists um, because of difficulties um, getting visas, for example, um, and trying to sell shows. Um, And we were really worried about that and wondered what we could do to be proactive about keeping international music at that specific time where there really was a lot of backlash and a lot of negativity. Um, And at the same time, we 
were so unhappy listening and and experiencing music in hotel rooms at the Arts Presenters Conference. We didn't like the sound, and we just felt like it was a really difficult way for presenters to listen to artists, and it was really difficult for artists to also perform in that environment. <clears throat> so we thought that let's try and create a festival um, that could introduce tour-ready artists to uh, pre- presenters, artistic directors, directors, decision makers. Um, let's let's put these artists in front of as many of these decision makers as we can, and really focus on artists that we feel are tour-ready, that have everything in place to go on the road. Um, whether those were new artists but were at a really high level or whether those were established artists but mm, weren't hitting performing arts centers and really re- just focused on, let's say, clubs or you know, different levels in their careers and, and types of touring um, backgrounds. Um, and so we put together um, an idea, a concept that was based around the Womex model of multiple stages in one night. And um, at that time, Bill was the director of Joe's Pub at the Public Theater, and we spoke with the Public Theater and asked whether we could take over three stages and have simultaneous concerts happening over a six-hour period with three stages for artists on each stage overlapping by 20 minutes so that all the audience members could see all 12 groups in in that one night. And then the challenge was really, can we get the presenters out there um, to this event? And the first year we sold out and sold over 800 tickets. And the second year we sold out. The third year we did two nights at the public theater and um, realized that that was too difficult for us and really too much to ask of the artists. Um, too difficult for us because we're also buyers at the Arts Presenters Conference. So it had taken away our being able to participate in the Arts Presenters Conference. Um, so we decided to move it to Webster Hall. And it's a real challenge to find a space in New York City that has three stages. Um, and so we we moved to Webster Hall, I don't know, eight years ago maybe, um, and have been there ever since. So the model has stayed the same over all of these years. Um, the level of artists has, and the the criteria has really pretty much stayed the same over all of these years. Um, and the audience has grown, but we've reached capacity, so it can't grow audience-wise anymore. Um, So at this point, it just sells out, and then people don't get in. Um, Certainly a good problem to have. (laughs) Yes and no. It's it's a complex problem. Yeah. It's because, you know, you want people people to come there. Right. We don't want to turn a presenter away. Um, We don't want to turn an audience member away, but we certainly don't want to turn a presenter away because it really is an industry event 
that has the feeling of a festival. So when you go to Global Fest, you feel like you're at a festival that's just music for six hours straight and people running around and, and really having a good time. <clears throat> but it is an industry event, but you wouldn't necessarily know it if if you and, – and a lot of people don't know it who go because we have – over 500 industry professionals at Global Fest, but then we also have a thousand general public people who come to it as well. Right. I, I really like hearing you talk about how the you know the early days of it. Um, it's just it's such a great example of identifying a huge need in the market and and creating uh, you know an opportunity to fill that need. And you guys were you know, clearly right on, on the money, so to speak, when you launched. Um, so in the intro, I mentioned at each festival, there's 12 bands on the lineup. Is that that's still correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how, how many submissions would you guys, would you say you guys actually received approximately each year? Oh, we get uh, several hundred. Yeah. How How do you guys sort of narrow down the selections? I mean, what specifically do you try to look for in each artist that, would help you determine they're going to be a good fit for the festival? Um, well, um, we have we have criteria that is that the artists, most important, the artists have to be tour ready. And that means that they have to have an in- infrastructure around them that they have to be prepared to tour the following season after Global Fest. Um, there's some artists that are great but aren't ready to tour the next year or there's some artists that wouldn't be able to tour for other various reasons. But first and foremost, um, the artists have to be tour ready and that means that they have to have a management team or they have to be very, they have to be strong self-managers. Um, they have to have all promotional materials and, and great promotional materials available. They have to um, um, have um, music that and video that presenters would be able to use if they're booked uh, following Global Fest. Um, it has to be uh, diverse regionally and musically. Um, so we choose from very traditional artists to very contemporary artists. So we'll have artists that are like Persian classical music, and then we'll have a Tex-Mex punk band um, or a gypsy punk band. I mean, it really runs the range of um, musical styles. Um, and we like to have as strong a range as we can. So we want to make sure that we have traditional artists and we have contemporary artists because part of, uh, because the people who come to Global Fest are presenting in all sorts of venues from clubs to performing arts centers to amphitheaters to outdoor festivals. So we need to have something for all of these, for as many types of theaters as we can. And that's reflected in our stages. So we create three 
sort of stage environment. We have a sort of club stage, we have a performing arts stage, and we have a festival stage. And we, so we also, so we have to also choose groups for the stages because a group that is, as I said, like the Persian classical group is not going to fit well on the festival stage or in, on the club stage. So we also have to fit in um, those, that criteria. And then um, a geographical um, diversity as well. So we're really not, we're trying to not, one thing that we try to do is not um, flood the market with artists from one region and also tend to not um, overlap from year to year artists. So an artist that performed at Global Fest last year who's going to be touring this year, we don't want to present another band from that same tradition so that we create competition for that group that we've just we're just pushing into the market. Um, and because we're arts professionals ourselves and, and care so much about the, the sort of the ecology of um, the market, um, you know, we're, we're constantly weighing these questions. Um, some artists we really, really want to bring to Global Fest, but it just doesn't make sense, you know, for, for this year, let's say. Um, so it's really a balancing act, and eventually it really falls into place. The other thing that I think that we do and try to do each year is really leave space for artists that we don't know, just complete surprises. And I think we've been able to do that every year. Um, and the other thing that we are aware of when we're when we're curating is um, of things that are happening in in the world, and um, so we've paid particular attention to Haiti, for example, after the earthquake, and to Katrina, um, to to um, the Gulf Coast after Katrina. Um, just you know, where artists been really clearly hard hit. Um, Mali in West Africa is another example where you know we feel like. Artists need support from those regions. Um, so that gives you a, a general background um, of how we choose artists. It's a very complex and takes yeah, a really, really, really long time. There's a lot of layers going on there. It's, it's really good. I appreciate you um, describing all the considerations. It's certainly not an easy task. There's a few, there's, there's, it looks like there's two major um, initiatives that Global Fest that, uh, does each year, the, or has ongoing, I should say. The Touring Fund and then Global Fest on the Road. Um, mm -hmm. Seems like both of those have been very successful. For a little bit of context, I, Billboard did a great article on, on this year's festival, and in the article it talked specifically about the Touring Fund, and it mentioned since, uh, 2011 grants have been given to approximately 17 groups for a total of just under $50,000, which enabled artists to reach 86, U 86 cities in the U.S. The, the idea for the touring fund seems like such an obvious one now, but how did you guys initially 
get the idea to do that and how did that come about? Um, it came about, it was really a natural extension of what we were doing because we found that, um, especially less established artists were really struggling with touring inside the U.S. Um, because of the size of the groups and the costs of transportation and freight. And um, we were really hearing from artists that they were struggling and came up with the idea of a competitive grant that all artists that participate in Global Fest can then apply for. Um, and it's a, it just seemed to make a lot of sense. Um, not all artists need it, but the artists that need it really, really, really need it. And it's that, you know, $1,000 or $4,000 that can make a huge difference in um, whether, in some cases, whether artists can even tour, can accept can accept their tour dates. Um, so it just made a lot of sense to us. Um, we got seed money from the Ford Foundation to start this Global Fest Touring Fund, and then we're refunded by the Ford Foundation. So we know that we can continue um, to offer this support to artists. And um, and when Billboard, when the Billboard article came out, um, I think we were at five rounds of the Global Fest Touring Fund. I, we just did it around, so we're at six. So it's um, substantially more. Um, we just did around. I think we funded four more artists, reaching a lot of new markets. Um, and you know, unfortunately, in this country, there's no place. There's 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 very few opportunities for artists to go to for money. There's places where a presenters can go to get grants to bring in of course, to bring in, in artists, but the artists can't, there's, there's very few where the artists can go. So our grant is, go, the money goes directly to the artist, not to the presenter. The artist writes the grant. It's a super simple process. Uh, we put together a team of colleagues <clears throat> to view the grants and um, go through them twice a year and divide the money um, and some of the sometimes are in a position to add additional money to the touring fund <clears throat> through um, our Indiegogo campaign or Kickstarter campaign when we go above um, uh, when we go above the um, goal that we're we're trying to make that money goes directly into our touring funds. So sometimes we are able to um, put more money into the pot. And um, and we know that there's a huge need for this and, and hope that, you know, at some point it, we can even broaden it. Yeah, clearly um, to date artists have benefited from this. It's, it's, it's a great initiative that you guys are doing. Um, can you, we don't have too much more time. There's a few more things I was hoping to ask you about. Um, could you talk a little bit about the On the Road uh, initiative and, and your partnerships at Bonnaroo and South by Southwest and sort of how those came about? Sure. Um, on the Road came about through a conversation 
that we had with Cami, um, one of the big agents in uh, the U.S., and um, they felt that they would be in a really great position to reach performing arts centers with Global Fest artists and with a Global Fest branded tour. Um, we came up with a concept for our first tour, which is happening in February 2016. We have three artists. Um, uh, the, the theme of the tour is Creole Carnival, and we have three artists from carnival countries, uh, Haiti, Jamaica, and Brazil. We have um, a samba group from Brazil, Casuarina, um, uh, popular artists from Haiti, Emmeline Michelle, and Brushy One String, who's a Jamaican artist who sort of plays R&B blues with a touch of reggae uh, on a one-string guitar from Jamaica. And it's traveling to, I think it's 40 cities. It's something incredible. Um, and so it's it's really taken off, and it's given um, markets all across the country and in, in to performing arts centers that I've never heard of um, that have just you know are really excited about being able to with about the concept, but as well you know the the choice of the artist that they feel that it's going to be really successful and new and exciting in their in their communities. Um, we're also working to help with outreach so that each of these cities and theaters has tools to reach out to um, new audiences there. Um, and then hopefully we'll be doing another tour uh, next year, the following season. Um, and then Bonnaroo and South by Southwest and Festival Ile de France are all what we call infiltration activities. Um, and the infiltration activities are are recognizing two things. One, that there's um, that there's an overlap between the nonprofit uh, performing arts world and the for-profit, more commercial music world. And what we've tried to do, and what we try to do, is um, well infiltrate <laughs> and um, bringing great music to festivals that wouldn't ordinarily have um, these types of artists on their stages. So each year for the last four years, we've had um, the Global Fest stage at South by Southwest, and which is the biggest festival in the country, I know. Um, I mean, it's just, uh, well, I guess a very well-known festival. Um, and Bonnaroo, which is really um, a rock festival that takes place in Tennessee each year and with very open-minded listeners. And so Global Fest is, is really, um, it, it's it's such a great opportunity for us to be able to bring artists that we think um, will really do well and, and develop new audiences um, in new to, to people who don't ordinarily listen to world music. So yeah. this year at Bonnaroo, we had Tanya Tigok, who's a very avant-garde Inuit singer from northern Canada. We had the very best. We had Songhai Blues, and we had Atomic Bomb, who was William Onyebor. <clears throat> That's great. I love the phrase infiltration initiatives. I'm going to have to steal that. 
<laughs> a really good example of the way you guys think about marketing and how you are constantly looking to add value, not just at Global Fest itself, but these other initiatives. And the tour you mentioned um, on the road, those artists, that sounds really wonderful. I'd, if they're coming through the Northeast, I'd love to check them out. Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah. They're really hitting, I mean, a very, a, a large part of the U.S. It's it's really impressive. That's really great. <clears throat> well, and I think that that's good, you know, for the entire, you know, for for everybody because, you know, if it's successful, that means that those presenters will be bringing more international artists to their stages. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just, I was going to say, I know, um, you know, it's probably somewhat of a busy time uh, for you. I want to thank you so much for doing this and wanted to also mention that um, this Saturday, correct, your uh, Live Sounds is presenting a concert as part of the River to River Festival? Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. It's at the South Street Seaport on uh, Saturday from 5 to 9, free music, um, great bands, and um, hopefully it'll be a beautiful night, but it's it's really a great, great place to see music. And and the whole River to River Festival is really fun. Absolutely. Well, attend it if you can. <laughs> and Isabel, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. You've spoken all about a, a lot of things, which no doubt are going to be of value to everybody listening. And I cannot thank you enough for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, too. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.